0: This morning we turn again to the book of Malachi. We've been working through this book and we're now at chapter 2. And if you haven't been with us in the last 2 weeks, we've seen Malachi cross-examine Israel's heart, exposing their hearts which were cynical of the Lord's love. Exposed their worship which had dishonored the name of the Lord by bringing sick and lame sheep as sacrifices and exposed their priest Who had failed in their responsibilities and turned people towards sin rather than away from sin. And this morning, we find Israel once again weeping, bemoaning the fact that God is not answering their worship with favor. And once again, God declares that there is an obvious reason for this because they're coming to sacrifice to the Lord while actively disobeying Him in a significant area of their lives. Namely, their marriages. Here in this passage in Malachi 2, we have one of the strongest statements in all of Scripture on the beauty and the sanctity and the goodness of marriage. But also one of the strongest statements in all of Scripture against divorce. And I'm well aware that as we look at a passage like this, in the body of God's people, there are many different circumstances represented And our initial reaction to this passage may depend much on the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And so my hope is to consider the point of this passage and God's intention for marriage and call away from divorce and then circle back and consider its application for us in the many different situations we may find ourselves in. But let's begin by reading God's Word in Malachi chapter 2. We begin in verse 10. And read through 16. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob. Any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion And do not be faithless. God, this is your word that you've given to us, first to Israel, but now again you speak to us by your Spirit today through your word, which is living and active. Would you work in our hearts this morning for Christ's sake? Amen. As many of you are well aware, statistics are convenient things. You can pretty much find or form or frame statistics to defend anything you want to. And I discovered that again this week when I did a a quick Google search on divorce rates in America. And when I searched for current divorce rates, the, the the top five headlines included the following. Divorce rates skyrocket during pandemic. Marriage is strengthened and divorce falls during pandemic. Divorce rates the lowest in 50 years. Marriage rate the lowest in 50 years. Then I searched about divorce among evangelical Christians, and the top two headlines read, divorce rate higher among Protestant evangelicals than any other category. And then second, regular church attenders marry more and divorce less than all others. So it's good to know that the statisticians have everything figured out. But for us as a church, of course, statistics are not really our concern. Divorcing more or less than the world is not our measure of success. Our primary concern as God's people is understanding God's design for marriage, God's perspective on divorce, and then seeking to obey Him with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength. And in this passage, we're reminded that marriage is created by God and is guarded by God so that in most cases, divorce is nothing less than an affront to the holiness of God. And yet my guess is that it doesn't take a statistic for us to know that God could speak these same words to the church today as he did to Israel in Malachi's day. Many of us will know stories Of Christians who have decided that their marriage is not worth the effort or that they can't live like this, or surely God would not expect them to. And so we need to hear Malachi's main point in this passage this morning that God is no longer paying attention to Israel's worship because of their faithlessness to one another in their marriages. And I want to walk through Malachi's case, which is once again a a logical, lawyer like case in which he establishes Israel's sin. Let's start in verse 10. In verse 10, Malachi's case begins with God's reminder to Israel of their unique identity as a people and his call to them to be faithful as his covenant people. God says, or Malachi says, inspired by the Lord, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? And as with all people, Israel, of course, was created by God. But as Israel, God had also adopted them and covenanted with them. He had declared himself to be their father, making them his own people. And as such, Israel had every right, or excuse me, every responsibility to be faithful to him and to his covenant. But not only was God call, had God called Israel to be faithful to him, But in addition, in their unique status as God's people, Israel was bound together to one another as those who commonly had one father who had called them and made them his own. They were called to live together according to God's laws. They were called to model his covenant faithfulness to each other. Just as the church today is one body with one Lord and one Spirit and one God and Father of us all and that shapes not only how we live individually but how we live together. So Israel is called by one God and one Father and that shapes how they live together just as it shapes how they live before God. And so Malachi cries out, if this is the case, if we have one God and one Father, why then are we faithless to one another and in being faithless to one another We are profaning the covenant of our fathers and that's the root issue in their faithlessness to one another in their marriages they are being faithless to god and profaning his covenant and they're doing so in two ways and malachi traces each of them he starts in verses 11 and 12 charging the people with bringing an offering into the sanctuary of the newly rebuilt temple this sanctuary which was holy to the lord But while they're bringing this offering into the holy sanctuary at home, they have married the daughter of a foreign god. Now it's worth remembering that in Israel, remember, Israel was a minor nation under control of foreigners. And it was likely that marrying some of these foreigners, particularly for upper class in Israel, would have been politically advantageous. In fact, remember, Malachi was prophesying around the time of Malachi and we, or excuse me, uh, around the time of Nehemiah, and we know from Nehemiah that at this time, the high priest himself was related by marriage to Tobiah, and his grandson had married the daughter of Sanballat. Both Tobiah and Sanballat were well-positioned local political leaders. But of course, therein lies the problem, because it was Tobiah and Sanballat who were the two main opponents of Israel who tried to undermine the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Now, the issue here, of course, is not with marrying someone who's foreign. After all, an Israelite had married Rahab the Canaanite, and Boaz married Ruth the Moabite. But Ruth and Rahab had both clearly expressed their faith in and commitment to Israel's God. The issue was marrying a foreigner who was still committed to their foreign gods. This God had specifically forbidden in Deuteronomy 7.3, For he said that if Israel married foreigners who were worshiping other gods, they would lead Israel also into idolatry. In fact, I think Nehemiah 13 put it well when Nehemiah called out to the people and said, if even Solomon, who was beloved by God, was made to sin by foreign women, shall we do this great evil and act treacherously against our God? See, Israel's marriage is were specifically disobeying God's law and they were breaking faith with their fellow Israelites by bringing in idol worshipers, marrying them and bringing them into the covenant community and so bringing false worship into their midst. And so God declares these marriages are faithless abominations that profane his covenant. And he will cut off such a one and his descendants who do this and still attempt to bring an offering and worship. And I think you can see God's logic here, right? You're trying to come to me and worship and proclaim yourself faithful to me, but at the same time you're going home and making your marriages, your closest human bonds, with someone who rejects me in favor of a foreign God. This is mixed loyalty. It would be like perhaps claiming to love your company and work hard for it, but after clocking out after minimal hours, you go home and work a long side job for your chief competitor, and finding that your boss was not pleased with this arrangement. Now, to attempt to worship God and marry a, a daughter of a foreign idol is nothing less than mixed loyalties, which of course is disloyalty to God and to his covenant. And God says he will not answer Israel with favor while they disobey him in such marriages. Now, if we pause and ask, how does this apply to us as Christians? Well, Paul tells us very clearly that there will be some who are married as unbelievers and one comes to know Christ. And so you will have a marriage in which one is a believer and one is not. Or perhaps two people get married thinking they are both believers and then one departs from the faith. And in these situations Paul says that we should remain in those marriages and honor the Lord there and that God will give grace in those situations. But for believers who are coming to marriage, Paul calls believers to marry only in the Lord in 1 Corinthians 7:39 and then he adds in 2 Corinthians 6 that we should not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. So for single Christians, marriage is good and desirable. But Nehemiah and Malachi in the Old Testament and Paul repeatedly in the New Testament call you to marry only another believer to marry in the Lord. And this is not a restrictive command. It's not an arrogant standard or a purist principle. This is a call for our good. Because marriage is to be the relationship in which you share your lives and your souls most closely and completely with another person. And how can you as a believer do that with someone whose beliefs and desires and standards do not take into account the gospel or God's word without shortchanging your marriage? Life presents enough temptations as it is. We desperately need fellowship and saying no to sin and pursuing Christ. And so God calls us to marry only in the Lord for our good. And if we could add maybe a follow-up comment to that, for those who are not married, well, God can certainly use us in friendships with those who do not know Christ. If we should not marry an unbeliever, the default conclusion must be that we should not date an unbeliever. Since dating sets us on a path to growing closeness that is meant to culminate in marriage, if all goes well. So here we have marriage sin number one in which Israel was disobeying God by marrying those who worship a foreign God. But then Malachi adds a second thing. He says, in this second thing you do, you are praying to me, you are seeking to worship me, and and yet I am not showing you favor, and you wonder why? The Lord says, it's because you are faithless to the wife of your youth divorcing her. And here in verses 14 and 15, we see this second area of faithlessness. And we find in these verses such a a rich theology and beautiful description of marriage. And I want you to note the details and phrases that Malachi uses to describe marriage here. Malachi begins by emphasizing the holiness of marriage. He says that marriage is a covenant sealed with vows to one another, made before the Lord as witness. Now in the ancient world, A witness was not merely someone who was there or present to attest that something happened. A witness in the ancient world was also someone who could be called on later to enforce the terms of that covenant or agreement. And so not only is marriage sealed with a vow which we dare not break, but it is a vow in which God himself is witness, and therefore God himself is the one who will be called on to enforce the terms of that vow should one break it. Then the sacredness of marriage is further sealed because God himself makes husband and wife one. You see that in verse 15. Did he not make them one? Verse 15 is a, a very difficult verse in the Hebrew to translate. It could say, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union, indicating that God's spirit is present in the union or more likely, uh, that, that God himself made them one in body and in their spirit. I think after studying this, that's the more likely meaning. But either way, the same point is being made. And it's the same point that Jesus makes in Mark 10, verse 9, when he says, What God has joined together, let no man separate. For to do so is to profane what is sacred before the Lord. Malachi also describes the nature of the marriage relationship. He calls the wife of your youth your companion. And this word is a beautiful word. It's not a word typically or primarily used of relationships. It's it's primarily an architectural word, which talks about uh, the joint or seam of a building or the process of cementing two things together such that they cannot be broken apart. But where the word is used of relationships... It's used to describe two people who are closely bonded to one another with mutual interests together in life. And so this word companion, this companionship, expresses the natural result when God makes husband and wife one in body and in spirit. Then Malachi reminds the people of God's goal for marriage. And maybe this is a comment that seems to come completely out of the blue for us. Uh, in our way of thinking, but verse 15 then says, And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. What was God's first command to the man and woman when He created them and brought them together? It was be fruitful and multiply. And how was God going to bring about salvation and the blessing for all nations through Abraham? It was through His offspring, who had become more numerous than the stars In the sky. See, God created marriage to be the means of carrying on His purposes from one generation to another. And God created marriages with the purpose of bringing one generation after another of godly offspring who would build the church and increase the number of worshipers into all eternity. Of course, here again we need to acknowledge that in a world that's broken by the fall, some of you will face the grief of not being able to have children. And God walks with you through that grief and uses you in other ways to be a blessing to his people. But for the church as a whole, God calls us to godly marriages and godly children. And I fear that in the church, it can be easy to adopt a secular mindset here in which children can be seen as a a burden or a barrier to living the life that we'd like to live or perhaps even irresponsible in light of the uncertainty of our times or the dangers they may face. And so many have few children or none at all. But God calls his people to have a very different perspective. Having children is both God's command and his purpose for marriages. And God calls believers, he calls his people, to be faithful to one another in their marriages that they might have godly offspring. And not only is it a command, but Having children is part of the way that we image the character of God. Because just as God, from, who was eternally content in himself, desired to create new life that many more might share in his joy, and just as Christ gave himself up so that many more might have new life in him, so we are called to give of ourselves in order to bring new life that many more might share in his joy and his purposes. That was God's first command for mankind in Genesis 1, and it's one of the primary purposes of marriage, brought out and why God calls us to be faithful to one another in marriage. Now, I didn't check with Cynthia Monti, our nursery coordinator, before saying this, but I really hope our nurseries are busier in the coming years for studying this and reviewing this. So Malachi emphasizes the holiness of marriage, the nature of marriage, a purpose for marriage, Malachi ends then with a call and a warning to those who are married. God warns, Since God was witness to your sacred marriage, since God has made husband and wife one in body and spirit, and since God has called husband and wife to raise godly offspring, therefore guard your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, Says the Lord, covers his garment with violence, ripping apart what God made one and breaking a vow made before him. Then God repeats the same warning again at the end of verse 16. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. God's repeated call here is an acknowledgement that marriage can be difficult, temptations will come. The blessing of marriage does not mean it will automatically hold you and your spouse together. And so there's a regular, constant guarding of our hearts, of recommitting to one another, a willingness to to seek help when needed and make sacrifices for the sake of our marriage. Those are needed that we might continue faithful to the Lord and faithful to one another. I think it's hard to imagine words that could so beautifully express marriage as a gift from the Lord. It's also hard to think of a passage that could fly more directly into the assumptions of our culture than this passage because it's working from exactly the opposite assumptions than our culture works from. Scott Yanor is a professor at Boise State University and he just released a, a new book it's it's not a Christian book, it's a sociological book, entitled The Recovery of Family Life Exposing the Limits of Modern Ideologies. And in the book, he he describes the way the modern ethic of relationships has formed around freedom, freedom of choice, individualism, and self-fulfillment. And he says that the typical pattern of approaching relationships today is to wait until we are emotionally and economically self-sufficient, then seek a relationship that either helps express or fulfill our desires, while delaying commitment to minimize risk and keep our options open. And the result of this mindset is delayed marriage, fewer children, more divorce, and more living together apart from marriage. And Yunor points out that we shouldn't be surprised to hear that the assumptions culturally are even beginning to impact the church. But Yunor writes in this book that while self-sufficiency, individual fulfillment, freedom of choice feel attractive in the short term, the data does not support the assumption that these things produce greater happiness. Instead, he argues that self-sacrificing dependence on one another in the context of commitment actually provides more security, more support, and greater happiness in the long run. And so In a separate interview, he says we need to embrace and teach our children the centrality of loving another human being, of giving yourself up to that human being sacrificially over the course of a life and all the hard things that entails and all the practical things that entails. For only a realization that our cultures call to freedom and self-sufficiency and sexual fulfillment does not lead to true happiness or flourishing. But that commitment is the passage pathway to blessing. Only that will restore marriages and families in our country. And I think we can say that about marriages and families in our church as well. Because none of this should surprise us. Self-sacrificing dependence is God's plan and pattern for marriage and family. It's the good summary of Malachi's description of marriage with commitment to one another with vows witnessed by the Lord in mutual dependence and companionship as we live together before the Lord. That is God's pattern. It shouldn't surprise us that even in our culture, some are noticing that that pattern leads to success and happiness rather than the alternative. Well, if we come to the end of this passage and we see these two calls against God, Faithlessness that Malachi calls out to Israel. We have to acknowledge that as a body of believers, our differing situations will likely shape our thoughts and initial reactions when we read a passage of scripture like this. What can we say to one another as a body of Christ as we apply this passage? Well, let me try to apply this to a number of different situations this morning. To those who are married, Let this passage be a review of the blessings of marriage. Let the phrases of this passage roll through your mind and through your heart as you think of your spouse, who is the wife of your youth, your companion, a wife by covenant, the one with whom God has made you one in body and spirit. What a blessing it is that God has given us one another in marriage. I remember sitting at the dinner table with an older professor of mine in, in seminary and a friend who was at dinner with us asked him, he said, he said, how should we think about marriage since, since Jesus says that marriage won't exist in heaven? And the pro- professor smiled and, and shook his head and paused and then said, marriage is God's most blessed provision for our journey. What a beautiful description of Marriage delight in this blessed gift to you this morning. To teens and young adults who are not yet married, this passage calls you to prepare for marriage, to prepare for marriage as a commitment before God and as a beautiful gift from Him. I would encourage you to prepare for marriage now by drawing near to Christ, by living self-sacrificially in your love for others, Seeing your commitment to others, not your freedom of choice or freedom to express yourself as the path to blessing. And if you are able, with godly counsel, pursue marriage as a good gift from God. But of course there are others this morning who are single and who long to be married. And God has not brought about that gift or that blessing. And we should not pass over the sense of loss or loneliness that can come from the long-term singleness. But we should also recognize while we do that the Bible, particularly in 1 Corinthians 7, gives voice to those who are unmarried and to the blessing that those who are single can be to the kingdom of God. And we should also recognize the knowledge that God is sovereign and He cares for His people and He sustains them in every situation, even when they have not received something that they desire." There are others this morning who come to this passage and and who have been divorced. And reading this passage for them can be difficult as it raises questions and doubts, perhaps opens deep griefs and losses. For some in this situation, perhaps there's a recognition that at some point we gave in too easily and failed to submit our preferences to the Lord and to fight for marriage. In that situation, our hope comes from 1 John 1 and 2, the knowledge that if anyone sins but comes in genuine confession, repentance, and faith, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, whose blood is sufficient to cover all our sins. For others who know the pain of divorce, of course, we read this passage and recognize that while all divorce is a tragic end to marriage, nevertheless, for some, divorce is a biblical reality. Jesus in Matthew 19 and Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 mentioned the covenant-breaking sins of adultery and abandonment, while some have even needed to be removed from a relationship for their own safety. And in these cases, divorce is not an affront to God, but a biblical protection in the face of deep sin against you. And we want to recognize that reality strongly for those who have been wronged in these ways. And yet we can't recognize this without also acknowledging that the existence of these legitimate categories, which apply to some of you today, have in other places in the church been interpreted so widely that it seems like any divorce situation can be squeezed into them so that this passage in Malachi almost becomes moot. In those senses, it seems so important to remember that in general, marriage is holy and divorce is profaning faithfulness to each other and to God, even while we recognize the legitimate places for divorce. And this is why, for those who might be in difficult marriages, it's so important for you to find godly counsel in the church if you're walking this road. Perhaps I can speak... Also, to others who are in difficult marriages this morning, to some of you who know the daily challenge of fighting to obey God's call in this passage. And I would encourage you, if you're in that situation, that your fight for your marriage in the face of difficulty honors the Lord and proclaims His glory. In fact, in many ways, those of you in this situation are proclaiming God's sufficiency and Lordship most loudly and clearly. As you reject the cultural assumption of freedom and fulfillment in favor of leaning on the Lord and obedience to Him. How do we do this? This is not a call to be stoics who just suck it up and do our best. No, we do this knowing that Christ Himself has died for us, knowing that Christ is our strength and our sufficiency knowing that Christ is the one who has reconciled us to Him and can reconcile us to one another. And it's dependence upon Him that we walk this path. Well, finally, I know I can't mention every situation, but let me mention one more. Because I'm confident that there are some this morning who are here or watching who find this whole discussion of marriage confusing and difficult because you feel attracted to the same gender and you don't know how to think about marriage or you perceive God's commands to be restrictive or impossible for you. Well, I believe firmly that in God's word, God has established the pattern of marriage to be between a man and a woman. I also believe that if you are in this position, God's word is and can be your grounding, your sufficiency, your hope, and your joy. But my great concern is that the culture will deny this. And they will not tell you what is best for you because they have a different agenda for you. An agenda that feels freeing or refreshing, perhaps at first, but is not for your good. And so my prayer is that if you are in this situation, that you would run to God's word and trust God's character. That his word and his guidelines are for our good as our creator and our savior. And my prayer for anyone who is in this situation is that you would talk with me or another pastor or a godly mentor who can walk you through this difficult battle in truth and in hope for the glory of God. Of course, for all of us in these situations and any other that we have not mentioned specifically, we all have one hope, don't we? Our hope and our model in all of these things is God's own love for us. Because marriage is a picture and a reflection of Christ's love for His people in which He sacrificed Himself even to the point of death for sinners who were walking away from Him or running headlong away from Him. He sacrificed Himself to the point of death that He might make us ours forever, that He might bring us into unbreakable fellowship and communion with Him if we would come to Him by faith. And so our security and our hope and our joy in every situation is in His work for us through Jesus Christ as we rest in Him and in Him alone. As we do so, as we rest in Christ, our hearts will be freed and established to be faithful to God and faithful to one another, just as Malachi called Israel to do this morning. Let's pray. Father, how oh, I thank you for this passage of your word, which gives us guidance and truth about marriage, this relationship that you have created and you have called us to as a good blessing. And Father, I know that there are many in different circumstances this morning. I pray, Father, that you would strengthen their marriages in our church, that you would give joy to husbands and wives in their marriage that you would strengthen our families that would be raising godly offspring for the glory of your name. And Father, for others in, in these various situations who are walking roads of pain and difficulty, who are suffering grief and loss, I pray, Father, that you would be their companion, that you would draw near to them and comfort them by your presence and by your word. Father, I pray that you would keep us from sin, keep us from our selfishnesses? Draw us back to reliance on your word. Father, would your word be our grounding and our guide? Would it be the thing that we trust in? Think of Proverbs 3, which says, be not wise in your own eyes, but trust in the Lord with all your heart, and he will direct your paths. May we walk that road and trust in you and our relationships and in our marriages this morning and in the weeks and months to come. Father, we pray this in the hope of the gospel, knowing that you have set our pattern in Christ and given us hope and salvation in him. How we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, Contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.